0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. It's always an honor to speak to my next guest, and uh, we're going to be speaking to you now about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And joining us is the former commander of Canadian Special Forces Command, Kansov, including Canada's elite Special Forces Unit, Joint Task Force 2. Are we heading into or already into the conflict of our time have the Russians have been preparing for this with an understanding of what the West response would be and turns out to be are we missing something Steve day joins us commanding former commanding officer of joint task force 2 founder of reticle.ca strategic risk specialists Steve thank you very much uh, for the time I was talking to a guest in the last hour it's John Wright uh, and and I you know ten, years, 10 10 years 10 days ago 12 days ago most Canadians had no real sense of what was going to happen. You know, the Russians were on the border of Ukraine, and they said they weren't going to attack. And here we are now, and we're forming opinions, and we have strong views. How well and how long were the Russians preparing for what they're doing now? Did we miss something along the way?
1: Hey, Roy, pleasure to be back with you. Um, I think I, I don't think the intelligence apparatus missed What's been uh, what the Russians were preparing to do? Because you may or may not be aware that last July there were conversations when the Russians were doing lower-level maneuvers back then, and President Zelensky actually confirmed to say, "Hey, are you guys what's going on here?" Effectively, so we have been watching it. I think what maybe got missed was a failure to imagine what this could be, because clearly since the Second World War we haven't really. Uh, well, other than the Cuban Missile Crisis, but but you know, bear with me. Um, haven't really imagined this this situation where there's a ground war in Europe. I think it's been a long time.
0: Yes, it sure has. So so now we have this, and we have other countries being drawn into it. We have forces in Poland. And we have the, the Polish um, military maybe making. Soviet era jet fighters available to Ukrainian pilots, and in return, the United States may provide F 16s to Poland. Uh, all of these things are developing, and it's, at least we're only aware of them very, you know, on the surface, very, you know, very recently. But so we have the shooting war going on, but we also have, we keep talking about China being sort of the bully in the back of the room. Just where do they fit in? And the question becomes, is this Russia-Ukraine battle part of a much bigger global conflict? What, are we missing something here?
1: Yeah, and again, I, I would say that if we look at the global competitive space of the you know, 21st century and where we're currently living, clearly there are Western liberal democracies the world over that are under assault from dictatorships and tyrants, etc., and a very much autocratic style of gover- governance. So this has been going on for about 15 years in earnest for those that have been looking at it. But yes, make, make no mistake about it. The Chinese, they, looking at Taiwan. North Korea, looking at South Korea there in the Korean Peninsula. Iran, looking across the broader Middle East. Are probably three other countries that are specifically watching how the west reacts to the russian aggression
0: so can you expand on that a, a little bit what might their intentions be depending on what they see from the west
1: well again just let's just pick pick china for a moment because we we do realize it's another geopolitical foe and global competitor um it's been very clear that China has been messaging about Taiwan as part of the larger Chinese nation. And so in the West has been saying, no, we will defend, or specifically the United States, no, we will defend Taiwan and we will prevent that from folding back under China. So the Chinese situation, um, the Korean situation or the Middle East situation, we've got three other adversaries with nuclear weapons just like the Russians have nuclear weapons, and clearly Great Britain, France, um, the United States have nuclear weapons on our side. So this whole nuclear um, brinksmanship from, from Vladimir Putin is going to be watched very closely about, is he bluffing? I, I don't know. Um, but if you're looking at that that geopolitical space, if we do not, and I think we're actually doing not a bad job of uniting the West, but if we do not push back hard, without igniting world war three or a nuclear exchange then those other nations will absolutely be emboldened
0: so when you hear the term no-fly zone and you hear the call by the ukraine government and you hear it supported uh, emotionally by people on the street in the west does that make any sense at all or is the plan that's being discussed that we've been made aware of but Poland may make some Soviet-era jet fighters available to Ukrainian pilots who trust, tested on those who, who trained on them, and in, in return, Poland gets F-16s from the United States. Does all of this come together? Or we, you know, I keep hearing the term "hybrid war," conflict, and hybrid warfare. I'm trying to put it all together, Steve.
1: Yeah, and and it, it, it's absolutely what they're in the middle of. Is, is this is a hybrid war? This is a hybrid conflict, and what that really means, it means using all the different levers of national power, diplomatic, economic, military, informational space, and applying those in different ways and means to achieve your national interests. So the Russians are very well known with their their cyber threats and they, they attacked Estonia in two thousand and eight. Clearly they did the military piece in two thousand and both eight and then two thousand fourteen with Georgia and Crimea. They've used economic Uh, pressures against europe for decades so they they've been very good from a hybrid perspective not uh not making sure they've crossed over that military line which would draw us into a a force on force hot war but going back to the no-fly zone position um and it's interesting at least from my perspective yes i understand militarily why we may not want to put a no-fly zone in, in in um in effect. Because I get it. I understand why that's difficult. However, I also think maybe there's a failure to imagine here. If we look back, um, because history repeats itself, look back to the Berlin airlift from 1948 to 1949, when the West flew in humanitarian aid into East Berlin and told the Russians, we're coming regardless of whether you want us to come or not. Is there any reason why we could not establish a similar air bridge to bring humanitarian aid in to those people who need the aid. We did something similar in Bosnia and in Syria even recently. So it is possible, but it just needs to be very, very, very clear what it is we're doing. And we need to make sure that diplomatic channels, the military channels and everything is, is eyes wide open. So I hear people say, yeah, you can't do it. I do not ever believe in nevers. And black and white I believe in the in the gray space and I think the West should be trying to play in that gray space and say okay got it we might not be able to do a pure military no-fly zone but why can't we do a humanitarian aid air corridor uh,
0: Steve when you look at Russia's activities and actions go back to 1999 and, and and I've done some reading over the last couple of days after you and I talked off the air I started to look at the second Chechen war from 1999 to 2009 and Russia taking on uh, a breakaway Chechen republic in a brutal manner, and and it all starts to look familiar. Was did it sort of, I don't know. Did it begin with Putin? For Putin there.
1: Well, it, yeah, no, that's a that's a great example, Roy. The Chechen conflict in particular, um, and even just again recently, a and Aleppo, uh, Russia, uh, Russia, and I would. And again, I think it's important here to say we're not attacking the Russian people. Right, this is the Russian right. government. And as we're seeing, there's a lot of brave Russians standing up to Putin and his henchmen. But um, going back to the Chechen comment, yes, we're, we are seeing a replay of this. And part of this is because um, I'm convinced, I'm not, a, I'm, not a, a, um, sorry, I'm not a Putin expert, but what I've read and what I understand is he surrounds himself with yes-men. And so he doesn't get detailed, critical thinking about any of the things he's trying to put in place. And that's not only that, it's a conscript army, so it's very much an organization that just executes orders without pushing back on them. So my sense is he's probably in a bit of trouble right now. And when he looks back from his experiential lens to Chechen, well, the world didn't really care about what was going on in Chechnya. They just let him do what he wanted to do. The world didn't really push back against Syria when he was using arguably chemical weapons and Aleppo and what the de- devastation he did that. So he's potentially learned some wrong lessons back over the last 20 years. And now all of a sudden he's applying some of those wrong lessons in the wrong context. And he's got himself he's with his back against the wall. This is, this is my uh, looking at where we're currently at with, with Vladimir Putin in particular.
0: Yeah. And he said earlier today that as long as Ukraine accedes to all his demands, You'll stop the war. That sounds to me like I don't like where I am. I'm trying to get out of this. Uh, I may be oversimplifying things, but it certainly has a tinge of that to me. But let me come back to NATO and the responsibilities that NATO has and how we're being observed, as you said, by some of the dictator states in the world. So 2008, NATO's declaration in Bucharest, didn't that commit to opening the door to NATO membership so European democratic nations willing and able to assume the responsibilities of NATO membership. And then in 2014, there was another NATO declaration in Wales, which recognized Russia's military action in Ukraine that year and committed to collective defense, crisis management and cooperative security. So don't those two separate NATO declarations somehow suggest that Ukraine might expect protection from NATO or am I just not understanding?
1: Well, until you're a full-fledged member of NATO, and let's not lose sight of NATO as a defensive alliance, right? Right. So until you're one of those 30 nations, then you're not, um, you know, you you don't get the automatic uh, uh, defense mechanisms surrounding you. But what's interesting, and I'm glad you brought up 2008, Roy, in 2008 when NATO said, hey, Georgia and Ukraine, we're going to consider letting you into NATO if you get rid of the corruption in your government and start working and looking a little bit more like western liberal democratic nations well what happened in 2008 he went into chechnya he made the comment about 2014 he went into crimea so nato being a defensive alliance hasn't always really thought about what their you know big big pronouncements how that might be received on the russian side and i'm not suggesting we should give vladimir putin a pass here what i am suggesting is sometimes when we send messages we really don't think about it how it's being received by others.
0: Okay, so Putin keeps saying he just feels NATO and the European Union are pushing up against his borders, and he's having none of that. That's his, that's his that's his excuse or his rationale for for his actions. His actions are horrendous, but that's his his rationale.
1: That would appear to be his rationale because if you do look back to NATO circa the 1990s and look at NATO circa 2020. And you can see we have expanded eastward. Now, at the same time, we were welcoming Russia to come into the NATO fold because the intent was we'd be one big, relatively happy family. I think he's learned the lessons over the years, and he's using our own weaknesses against us, just like any bully, right? You come across that bully in the schoolyard, sometimes you've got to punch the bully in the nose, and you realize he's just a bully and he's actually a weak coward. I'm not suggesting with nuclear weapons we want to necessarily punch Vladimir Putin in the nose, but I think we need to get up there and, and keep the diplomatic channels open and say there's certain things we are absolutely not going to accept. For example, why do we allow him to keep stating what the red lines are? Why doesn't NATO put some red lines down?
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We, we certainly can do that and uh, well it's been done before by President Obama, but that didn't matter didn't mean very much once right the red line was breached so we'd have to uh, we'd have to do better than that. let me ask you about uh, about your company and what you've been doing a radical.CA strategic risk specialist because you've been spending time in I think it's six different European countries and and working with those governments in those countries. Tell us about that please.
1: Yes, since 2016, uh, we have about 50 um, largely Canadian but other international instructors, and we support the NATO Special Operations Schoolhouse on a whole range of different courses. But in terms of Eastern Europe, we've actually been in 10 different Eastern European countries helping those um, fledgling democracies, because I would still characterize lots of them as fledgling democracies, um, understand national resistance and national resilience. So whole of society defense constructs and then national resistance in terms of if the Russians did come in, how do you resist? And so that's something that uh, not only my company, but we're partnered with a U.S. company, and we support the NATO special operations uh, headquarters in Chev, uh, Belgium, as a matter of fact.
0: Okay, I have to ask you this question. Your special operations, do special operators just see the world a little differently? You see opportunity and potential where others might not. That is that a fair question?
1: Well, I, I think like any professional in any field, you're going to have people that look at the world differently. And special operations, we do look at the world differently, but we need our general purpose force brothers and sisters. We need the intelligence apparatus. We do need that larger effect or support to achieve specialized effects. But I, I would say, Special operations, men and women generally view the world slightly differently. And that's okay because diverse perspectives are what makes makes life worth living.
0: If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.